Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, Director of Strategic Communications for Democracy in Color. Hi, Charlene. How are you holding up in this cold weather? Hey, Steve. Hanging in there. It's really cold out. I know. You've been complaining about it a lot. We grew up in cold weather, so we should be okay. Totally. So we're coming to you today from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the scene of the crime, so to speak, or in the case of this president, the scene of the many crimes. And in fact, the first public hearings in the impeachment proceedings begin this week, and we're going to get to that with our very special guest. We're recording today at the Center for American Progress studio, where I'm a senior fellow, Center for American Progress, here in Washington, D.C. So for those who don't know, uh, uh, Center for American Progress, or CAP, as it's commonly referred to, is one of the nation's leading progressive think tank. It was founded in 2005 by John Podesta, who was then chief of staff to President Bill Clinton and senior advisor to Barack Obama. Really almost was found as kind of like almost like government in exile in that, t- in that period in time. And in fact, we have a clip of President Obama talking about CAP. Uh, well, thank you, Nira. Uh, for the wonderful introduction and uh, sharing a story that resonated with me. Uh, there were a lot of parallels in, uh, in my life and I resonated with some of you. Uh, you know, over the past 10 years, the Center for American Progress has done incredible work to shape the debate over expanding opportunity for all Americans. And I could not be more grateful to Cap, uh, not only for giving me a lot of good policy ideas, but also giving me a lot of staff. Uh, uh, My friend John Podesta ran my transition. Uh, My chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, uh, did a stinted cap. So you guys are obviously doing a good job training folks. And so with that, Charlene, do you want to introduce our guest? I would love to. It's my honor. Our guest today is Neera Tandon. She's the president of the Center for American Progress, also known as CAP. She's held this position since 2011. Previously, Neera served as senior advisor for health reform at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And in that role, she developed policies around reform and worked with Congress and stakeholders on the Affordable Care Act. Prior to that, Neera was the director of domestic policy for the Obama-Biden presidential campaign. And she was a top advisor for Hillary Clinton in her 2008 and 2016 presidential campaigns. On top of all that, she has been named to Elle Magazine's Women in Washington Power List and Political Magazine's Political 50. She has also been included in National Journal's Washington's Most Influential Women, Washingtonia Magazine's Most Powerful Women in Washington, and if that weren't enough, also Fortune Magazine's most powerful women in politics. So basically, <laughs> she's a total badass. I mean, it's funny when you Yikes. hear the bios of your friends and you realize, oh, they're a big deal. Right? <laughs> total so, big deal. Same, right. Steve, same. Uh, I don't know about all that, Nira, But we, Nira, have been uh, friends and colleagues, you know, for almost a decade now. Susan and I have been to her house for dinner with her husband, Ben, and her kids. And it's really easy to take for granted people's accomplishments. And so I think for all our listeners to put a fine point on it, Nira runs the country's largest and most influential think tank. She's literally an advisor and confidant to presidents and all progressive political and policy leaders. And it's not incidental at all. The person who does all of that is a woman of color. That's right. Mm -hmm. And an immigrant. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
Yeah. Given that she's such a big deal, we're especially <laughs> grateful she made time for us. So thank you for joining us, Nira. I'm so thrilled to be here with you. Thank you so much. Thanks to both of you. So let's talk about impeachment. So the public phase of the process has begun. And so my first question to you is what impact do you think that these hearings are going to have on public opinion? Well, I think what's fascinating about public opinion is how it shifted uh, pretty quickly. As you know, um, support for impeachment was a minority uh, issue or had uh, less than majority support uh, just a few months ago. And then with the advent of the news around Ukraine and obviously Speaker Pelosi's uh, push to start an impeachment inquiry, that position, that view has has dramatically shifted, gaining basically 20 points in the space of days, so that we're in a point where a majority, uh, often a clear majority, supports the impeachment inquiry, which is what we are in right now, uh, and uh, close to 50 percent of the country supports removal, which is relatively stark since... Uh, We haven't had the full airing of all the public hearings yet. And so I think the big question in front of us is, will the public hearings shift support even more? Will there be, uh, will we get to 55, 60 percent support for taking serious action against the president? Um, In my own view, we spent a lot of time talking about how Republican views are hardened with this president. And they they are absolutely. But Uh, you know, 20 to 30 percent of Republicans think the president did something wrong already. Whether that number grows, I think, is is an open question. But I think the Republicans are already squeezed on this issue. There's been absolutely no evidence so far that impeachment hurts Democrats. And in fact, I think the Kentucky elections in which a Democratic governor won in a very conservative state after the Republican incumbent really campaigned against impeachment <laughs> uh, demonstrates that there isn't that uh, backlash against Democrats. And I think this is really a question right now, which is uh, how much it wedges Republicans. So on that front, in terms of the how hard line the support is or how malleable or shiftable it is, I'm trying to th- understand, like, we're seeing so much disregard, disrespect, and destruction of mm-hmm. democratic institutions within mm-hmm. this country. And that... Uh, yes, right? we are. <laughs> um, so Cornell Belcher at the African American Pollster mm-hmm. said that Trump supporters feel that the barbarians are at the gate. And so as long as he is holding off the barbarians, as in people of color, immigrants in mm-hmm. particular, they'll forgive anything. And then if you look at the hearings, what's fascinating to me is that you've got almost all of the State Department come folks are white. And so they're, and many of them, you know, work for Republicans, et cetera, coming forward with a sense of patriotism that something was wrong in this country. So I'm wondering what's your sense between these forces, you know, tribalism, which I think is the euphemism for white supremacy or patriotism. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think that those forces are going to play out in this process? You know, I actually think the last several years could be reduced to tribalism versus patriotism, Mm -hmm. right? Because the issues around Ukraine are just the latest incidents of uh, really a destruction of democratic norms and institutions. So um, I think there are lots of controversial views about Trump's base and his um, his, uh, hold on them. I actually think that when you look through the last three years, there are times where you 
we were able to discern what the true Trump base is. Mm-hmm. And I think when you look at the at the uh, nadir or the low point of uh, support for repeal of the ACA, after six months of debate, the repeal su- support for repeal was at 27%. During the heat of the family separation policy, Um, When, you know, after the country had heard the voices of the children crying from Mm -hmm. their mothers, that issue became 27 percent support. So I do think there are variables. There are policies in which Trump has basically the public has moved to 70 percent in opposition to his policies on on particular occasions. Uh, And I think those are that's really instructive. He has a 27 percent in 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 base really hardcore base that he really could literally shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they would right. find a way to say that it was self-defense. And so, right. <laughs> and so uh, but I actually think you, we've seen in the last, uh, we've seen also that there's a broader group of people who are, uh, who are, you know, generally Republican or Republican aligned who like a lot of the various terrible things Trump does, but doesn't don't sign off to everything. And mm-hmm. I think that's the heat of this debate, which mm-hmm. is essentially you have basically people who seem like traditional Republicans arguing that what Trump has done has hurt the country. And whether that peels up enough support where he gets to, you know, mid-30s instead mm-hmm. of low-40s, I think is really a large-scale question. Mm-hmm. Because when he's really gone to the low-30s is when he's faced more opposition from his party. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people broke off on ACA repeal. Republicans actually did manage to criticize family separation. And we, we lose sight of this because he's been so heinous on right. so many levels. But he actually changed his policy on family separation. He still tries to essentially torture immigrants. Mm -hmm. I don't say he doesn't, but his literal policy on family separation did change as a result of the 70% outcry of which that means a lot of Republicans went against him. So I I think this is the the billion dollar question. Now we have day after day, (laughs) minute by minute evidence Mm -hmm. of the Republican Party not being willing to do that and the latest evidence is Nikki Haley saying which, you know, just really made my head almost explode. Yeah. Nikki Haley saying that she has no experience with any of with Donald Trump ever saying anything untruthful, which would <laughs> make gosh. her the only person on the planet with that right. experience. So uh, so I, I, I take the full weight of this. I think it's hard for I think it's um, not it's 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 um, almost treasonous how little the Republicans have, like, withheld, Mm -hmm. you know, held our Constitution in any esteem after the decades of shoveling their rhetoric down our throats. But, um, but, uh, and so I don't have much hope, but, you know, our goal is to try and work hard. And I, you know, I think the question before us is not so much can we remove him unless something really major happens, but whether you can get to majority support uh, of for removal, because mm-hmm. I think that will sh- that will mean something considerable to the public that a majority of the Senate supported removal, and you know Republican senators are very much wedged right now on this issue. Right. So, just for the listeners who don't know, so Nikki Haley is a former governor of South Carolina, and then she was Trump's uh, UN ambassador. Yes, I'm right. so sorry. So, she's supposedly a moderate, but in this past week, she's totally lost. She's her gone all mind. in. Yes. Gone all in on Trump. So, do. You, 
do you think, well, on that question, Mr. Fascinating, what's interesting to me, I'm looking at the senators, and I guess I take some, you know, there's also these half full, glass half full, <laughs> you're saying 70% uh, have moved. I'm also hearing, so 27% are just fine putting people in cages at the border. Yeah, no, so, it's terrible. Right? It's terrible. So. There's no, there's, I'm not, I'm not arguing. I, I just think we need to know, like, the most important thing to deal with an enemy or like if you're in a battle you just need to know what the terrain is right right? Right. and my view is that it's you know these are bad facts it's not is the fact that 27 percent of americans are willing to overlook everything he does is really deeply dispiriting (laughs) but i i do think we have to recognize and tell ourselves Often, because it is true, a majority of people have basically opposed Trump since he was elected. He right. has never had majority support. Right. Uh, he's the only incumbent president who has never enjoyed majority support in his entire tenure, and that's an important fact. Yeah. And it's interesting, one of the things I guess I do take some heart in is how much the Republican senators are like literally running away when people <laughs> are trying to interview them and they will run the opposite direction. Which is better than them circling the wagons around him, right? And so, yeah, yeah, do no, you no. think there's a chance in the Senate that if even more stuff comes out or opinion hardens, that he might actually get removed? I think I think it is hard to get to two thirds vote in a public vote. <laughs> so if they could all take a private vote, I'm sure that guy would be out today. But <laughs> but or or not sure, but he could be out today. But I think. Um, that's hard in a public vote, but I think I think the most important thing is to think about how the public sees these things. Particularly, we are going into an election year, so it doesn't matter. And uh, you know, I actually worked in the Clinton White House during impeachment, mm-hmm. and I didn't work on impeachment directly, but I definitely soaked up the ambient air of what <laughs> everyone was working on. And you know, it's fascinating how different um, the approach was. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, Bill Clinton tried to show, demonstrate that he could still work on people's problems. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump spends all his time talking about impeachment and how it's terrible to him. Read the transcript. And <laughs> Donald, I, Bill Clinton actually had events with the Republicans at the White House to still show he could be bipartisan and still should focus on people's problems. But <laughs> Donald Trump is just attacks Democrats regularly. And I think that the 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 reason why this matters and obviously and also I should say there was never majority support for impeachment. People opposed the impeachment inquiry. Mm-hmm. They impo- they opposed removal. They made a judgment that it was poor behavior, but it was bad behavior, but it shouldn't be impeached, right. which lots of Democrats said at the time. And Trump won't even let Republicans say that right. because they have to be 100 percent all in. And why I think this matters is even it is my view that the impeachment process hurt Democrats in 2000 because mm-hmm. people didn't believe that Bill Clinton should be impeached and removed, but they did think he did something wrong and should have faced some punishment. And I think it really did actually hurt Gore. And if you remember, George Bush campaigned on restoring honor, to, honor and integrity to the White House. He was definitely, which is the unbelievable, <laughs> the unbelievable given what happened. But he used that as a club against Gore. And I actually happened to work for Hillary's Senate run in New York. And we faced uh, some challenges because of that sort of overlay that uh, this is the issue with impeachment. It is one penalty for 
for crimes and misdemeanors. So my view is if actually they go through this process, people believe Trump did something really wrong. And again, 30 percent of Republicans think he did something really wrong right now. And that becomes a real majority support. And then nothing happens to him. That will be a problem for him and also a big problem for him with the Republic with Republican senators, which is I think Mitch McConnell understands. And that's why he's thinking of a longer process, because if they railroad this through, it will be bad for them. Yeah. No, I was quite pleasantly given given that he stole the Supreme Court seat. Yeah, I was quite pleasantly surprised that McConnell's even going to have the trial, actually. (laughs) See, I think and I think he knows that Mm -hmm. if he doesn't have the trial, it, it would be the public will think he's doing what he would be doing, which is just basically ignoring the Constitution for Trump. Right. Let me ask this question since you have the ear of all these people in D.C. It's a big thing that seems missing to me is the rest of the transcript. Yeah. Right? <laughs> they put out this summary, which is like 10 minutes long of this call with Zelensky, right, the Ukraine president. But if people who have read it out loud, it's only 10 minutes. The call is a half hour. Yeah. And people are not talking about demanding that. So do you think any possibility for that to become a bigger talking point? I with think Democrats? this is a really I think this is a really important point, which is I, I think the challenge here that Democrats have to navigate is the following, which is you're a thousand percent right. We should get the transcript. Right? Right. <laughs> but the problem we've had is that things issues like that become part of a litigation strategy right. and the courts actually have been ruling on, on behalf of democrats or with democrats not on behalf of with democrats but um it just slows down the process and right. i do think one thing that we have to be mindful of, and and there is some controversy around this but some thing to be mindful of is if this goes too far into 2020 right Will the public, I mean, Republicans will make the argument, will the public get to a point where they believe we should just let the election decide this, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's why I think what's happening is there's lots of evidence that they could get and probably would be helpful and instructive. But I think the assessment is we already know from what we have that he committed a crime, you know. And, he, and I think we should be clear. It's an, a crime to, right. <laughs> to extort people. Yes. It's a crime to try to bribe people. And so uh, so that's that's what I think the tension is. But you're absolutely right. We should be getting those. I just think they're worried that, you know, they'll subpoena them and then they'll go to court and we'll just be in that process. And Trump will want to hold on to make the process drag out because right. that's been one of his right. litigation strategies over his life. And people will say we should have the election decide it. The election that he's trying to get the Russians to... Yeah, manipulate. no, I think that's a really <laughs> right. important point. And one of the arguments I make to people is this call happened within days of days. the Mueller report. Yeah. So what really happened here, and you know, this has been a long-term scheme. It didn't just, mm-hmm. but he felt free enough to yeah. get on a call with multiple people, unbelievable, and extort a foreign leader for dirt on a political opponent because he'd just gotten out of right. the situation, and he he got out. He was basically, you know, he, and again, he manip- bar manipulated many things, but he essentially went through the Mueller process. Uh, about his actions on the past election and then within days decides I'm going to try and (laughs) uh, subvert the next election. And so I think this is a really important point to make to the public, which is if the the reason why impeachment is necessary is that if we do nothing, he will definitely act illegally again. He is like, he is, he is that as, as, as criminals 
can do. That's so, awesome. you know, that is, I think, the that's one of the arguments I think is also important to make. Right. Neerat, I wanted to um, turn to talking a bit about your your voice. Um, I have been really enjoying reading your tweets. <laughs> <laughs> you know, interestingly, <laughs> not everybody is a fan, so I'm I appreciate it when I hear I'm it. I'm a fan. You know, as a, as a woman of color, <laughs> as an activist, as a progressive, like, I love your outspokenness, your feist, your fiery, you are, you don't mince words, and um, and also your articles. I've been reading um, some of your articles, including going into some of the archives. And so yeah. your voice is just, you know, I've been really appreciating um, reading um, Thank you so and much. hearing That's your very voice. Kind. Yeah, Jen, one of the things I wanted to bring you back to is there's a piece that you wrote in 2010. Mm-hmm. It was a great piece, rather provocative. It was in, in the New Republic. And you had challenged members of Congress to, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, to stop worrying about polling and start worrying about your narrative. You concluded by saying, if individual members think that they can survive Republican attacks by simply running away, they should recognize that it's also possible that running away could dramatically worsen their predicament. Nothing will strike voters as more pathetic than doing nothing. And rarely in politics are pathetic politicians rewarded. So, <laughs> Although, so, see, lately, they seem rewarded a lot. Right. I don't know. And then you have the concluding lines. Yeah. Sometimes, Sometimes the only, the only way, way is out is through. And I did. I thought that was really resonant with you know, some of the, you know, the times that we're living with. And, and I wanted to find out why did you read that, uh, write that piece and what was some of the reaction to it back then in 2010? Yeah. So I wrote that piece because we were in the, in the throes of the last few weeks of the debate and it was touch and go whether uh, House Democrats were going to vote for ACA repeal. And uh, or ACA, vote for the ACA, and I'm so what sorry. What was your, where were you in the So I had just, point? so I, because I thought we were going to pass it a month before, I accepted a job at CAP and was at CO here, so I just literally left the day, days, a few weeks before the passage of the ACA, and I was here, so I could then channel all my rage I could speak freely (laughs) and channel my rage into uh, trying to convince uh, Democrats actually it was interesting I felt like I had more ability to sway them outside um, in those last few weeks Uh, so I I think the challenge everyone was going through at that point was oh the AC voting for this would mean we'd lose seats and you know I I actually think like we probably did lose some seats over that but what was most important was to demonstrate that we were actually doing things for people and again um, social policy and social change is hard to do and it is hard to it's, it rarely happens where it's just universally popular as you do it, because if it were universally popular, it would have been done earlier. And so um, I was trying to communicate to people how uh, actually, essentially, and I think this lesson still holds, which is the reason to be in public service and the reason to have public office is to make you know, people improve people's lives. And that is the thing. I know it sounds Pollyannish, but that is actually what you're supposed to do in these jobs. And you're not entitled to a career forever. And you should actually do the right thing. And everyone knew at that point that it was going to, you know, it was the right thing to do. And it was just a question of having them recognize that there was political cost for it. I thought the political cost would be greater to the party overall and progressive politics if we'd come so far and not pass the bill. And just 
to argue, to say, I mean, again, one of the, the sustainable things of the Obama administration, um, one of the most, and ma many things have been sustained, but one of the most sustainable issues has been the ACA. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that it was an important argument for history that Barack Obama de delivered real results for people and that that, uh, that, is, uh, that was worth the price. And it was a price that some people paid, but it was a, worth a price. And I, I, I would say the same to Republicans today who are looking at impeachment, which yeah. is this decision should not be about your next election, but it should also be about what you tell your grandchildren and what That's your right. grandchildren tell their friends about their grandparents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I mean, history, I, I definitely don't think we should ever pr assume progress. And I don't do that. But I, I, I am willing to bet a lot that health, the history will look unkindly on Donald Trump and his protectors. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I would say to Republican Republicans today that the right thing to do is staring them in the face. Yeah. Yeah. So, Niera, uh, I just want to jump in here. One of our priorities at Democracy in Color is strengthening the progressive yeah. movement by getting the right people in positions of power and influence, especially women and people of color. And in reading about your bi background and bio, I was super impressed and re really, I just got to be honest, really moved by your personal story, your personal journey from your childhood to where you are today. Mm. And I know that um, it just it's just as many obstacles as women face um, in the fields like politics, women of color, especially. And then on top of that, mothers in the workforce, just layers upon layers of what I kind of see as, you know, challenges. So first of all, can you share with us briefly the story uh, that I love? I've heard you tell it before, but I'd love for you to share with our listeners of your your childhood story about being an immigrant and how you came to this country and um, the the, the arc that you had that led you to become a progressive. Mm -hmm. And then also, if you could share with us, what are some of the factors that you felt led to your, that were most helpful in you getting to where you are today? Mm, that's a lot to chew over, but I'll do my best. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I actually feel uh, really privileged to do the work I do in, in progressive policy. And if, I mean, I think of the role of CAP as trying to think about how we trying to think and actually address and and change things so that every every person in the country has like not just lip service opportunity like real opportunities real abilities to advance and I come to that because I had you know somewhat uh, different experience than a lot of people in sort of the halls of power uh, and. In Washington, which is that um, my parents were Indian immigrants, uh, and my parents, uh, you know, my mother was very traditional, had a very traditional experience as an Indian immigrant woman. She came here, she didn't work, uh, she just raised her children, and um, when uh, I was five, my parents got divorced, and my father left for several years, and my mother, who never worked, had to really confront this question, which is whether she should go back to India or stay in the United States. And staying in the United States meant that she would, you know, have to find an apartment and go on welfare and think through those resources, or she could go to back to India, where in India she had a middle-class life. I mean, not super privileged, but a middle-class life. But she also knew that 
um, the, so, the social standing of divorced people or divorced women was very low and the social standing of their children were, were even lower. So she really wrestled with this idea that she was basically consigning her children to a particular life in India or she could struggle to stay here. And she did. She chose to stay in the United States and uh, we moved into an apartment. And, you know, I mean, I will say we had... Um, it's not luck because there were social policies designed by for it, but there were the, a series of benefits that, or a series of things that happened that allowed us to, you know, navigate and and thrive. So my we lived in a middle class town, Bedford, Massachusetts, has very good public schools, <laughs> um, and it just so happened that around that time, uh, Massachusetts had had passed this law that if you built low income housing. We built apartments with some set aside for low-income housing. They would speed your permit. So in this town of Bedford, there was this apartment complex created called Bedford Village, and we we were like the first family to move in. And so I was able to go to public schools, and I had a different experiences in the public schools. I was you know, I was I think one of a handful of brown kids, and I was the only brown kid in my first grade class class or second grade class. And I was the only kid who used the funny money. You know, I, I mm. was on free and reduced lunch, so mm. I got the little voucher for lunch for ten cents instead of a dollar fifty. And I was the only Amazing. kid who used that voucher. And I remember asking my mom, "Why am I using the voucher? Why am I using this?" And I have these this very vivid memory of being at the Purity Supreme because back then that was the that was the local supermarket, and we were the only. I was in line with my mom, and she back then. The food stamp program, which is now called SNAP, but the food stamp program gave literally fake money to people. Now they use um, ATM cards or what looks like an ATM card. But back then it was you'd have like fake dollars. And um, and, you know, we I remember being in line and this woman didn't even know what this was. And she had to call the manager. And it was a little embarrassing Mm -hmm. that like basically having a discussion of how we have to use food stamps in this very middle class town. But my overwhelming memory is, you know, going, being in classes with other kids and, you know, I was a little bit different, but I did well in school and eventually my mom got a job at a, at a Indian um, travel agent. Back then we had little travel agent yeah. offices right. and she was Pre- one of the people who worked pre-internet. there. Pre-internet. <laughs> yes. I know. And then... Um, and eventually she got a job at Waltham and uh, Raytheon, which is a defense contractor. And then, you know, within six years, she, um, I mean, we, by the time I was 11, she was able to buy a house in Bedford, wow. which was amazing. amazing, right? And, you know, my mom is a very strong woman. It's <laughs> very, she, she can be a tough cookie. But, you know, I mean, the fact that she navigated all these things, but it was like she navigated those things, but also there were just, and I say this to people all the time, that, the, the thing I take away from this is that there were t- a ton of people who made a series of decisions about building a country that would help people who needed help. You know, food stamps and Section 8 housing and, um, you know, like how, you know, basically um, how, how building apartments places. And, you know, I mean, it was a series of decisions about trying to ensure everybody has real opportunity and you know what i say about washington is we make decisions every day in washington whether we're going to expand opportunity for people or contract it 
And one of the dangers of like of politics becoming so cynical, and I think this is a strategy of Republicans, you make or conservatives and Republicans, you make politics so ugly you want people to turn away. But when people turn away, only a smaller group make the decisions. And that's why it's, you know, it's important. It's one of the important moments of, one of the important things of the era we live in is that people engage in politics, that they look at what's happening, that they see. Uh, and my deepest hope for this moment, um, which is often grim and hard to deal with all the assaults on everything we believe in, but the, my deepest hope is that this is an inflection point where the country stares at the abyss of a, of a country that basically eats itself and decides that we are turning away from that. And that is the decision we all face together a year from now. Right. <laughs> so you went from that background to then this perch where you're at now, where you're actually running this mm-hmm. you know, significant and institution. And I feel, I feel very privileged to do that. And it's, um, I have a chapter in my book called uh, Fewer Smart Ass White Boys, which, <laughs> <laughs> which Charlene, who was my book editor, also, also she keeps saying as no, no smart ass white guys. <laughs> smart ass <laughs> but so when, when, as you know, we, you know, a lot of us have been trying to fight to diversify progressive Absolutely. institutions, Absolutely. et cetera. So when actually when Nira got uh, appointed as president, I actually sent an email to a bunch of people, and I said, and just my subject line was, and just like that, and then the body was the country's largest progressive think tank is run by a woman of color. Yes. Mm-hmm. What do you? What are some things you attribute your ability to navigate that process to be able to get to this position? Yeah, I mean, I would say, um, I, so, I mean, I wasn't connected to politics or policy. I didn't have family connections when I came to Washington. So I'd say the most important thing is that I I think that there were progressive mentors who actually believed in ensuring that younger voices, uh, different voices, were part of the process. So uh, John Podesta uh, was a founder of the Center for American Progress and was a believer in my abilities. And I think I think one of the challenges that progressive, uh, or I think a, a challenge that I've seen and felt and experienced is that we have, as a country, uh, a vision of what leadership is, mm-hmm. right? And that that vision can be is basically like a tall, older right. white guy, right? And um, and you know, if you see me in in person, I am none of those things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm short. I am brown, and I'm a woman. Uh, and so, uh, I think that is there. I've had multiple experiences where I face that where I've gone into a room and people assume I'm a staffer mm-hmm. and I've gone into rooms with uh, with male colleagues where people assume the male colleague is the leader mm-hmm. um, but I think I think I think there is an issue which is just to try to be as as much as possible intentional about these issues and um, and uh, to try and be a play a place and have a style of leadership where we, support the advancing of all different kinds of voices. And I think one of the problems in progressive politics is you can think about things that are like people are the right fit. Mm-hmm. And and I think that just becomes an easy way to say, uh, I want to have people around who look and feel like me. Right. And that's really important to push against. And I've had a I've 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 seen that, but I've also seen leaders who try to push 
progressively, you know, per, to push other leaders forward. I was lucky to work for John Podesta and Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was a big, is a big believer in um, supporting uh, uh, women of women, women of color, and just uh, has in her offices. She always had a very diverse group of leaders, um, and uh, so it's when you live it, it's easier to uh, replicate it. Yeah. Um, so I do want to put a emphasis on those points that I think that Nero was just talking about. Just my experience, just even watching, you know, mm-hmm. your, your own trajectory and other people's, is that well, I mean, two two lessons that I take away, what you just talked about, is elevating existing talent. Mm-hmm. Right? You you all, we always hear so much. Oh, we couldn't find anybody, of color, mm-hmm. right? But you were here. Yeah, right? I was here. you were already <laughs> here, and that that's you know I've also used this example, and you see it in the entertainment industry, right? So it was. Um, uh, Taraji Henson plays uh, Cookie, right? In the mm-hmm. word, e- Empire, right? So all of a sudden, she took the country by storm. But it's she's like, been there forever. Exactly. Exactly. Twenty-year history. <laughs> I know. She was art student number two in Felicity back yeah. in the day, so she was there. And the other point is what you're saying is I do think there's an um, important for there to be an intentional commitment, but by the people in power, and particularly by the white people in power, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to elevate. So I mm-hmm. do think that John Podesta gets a lot of credit. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. For elevating you, and and he has stepped out of the way. <laughs> <That's actually laughs> he has. He's on the board, so. but he's, he's stepped out of the way. Yeah. All right, so we're going to um, have to wrap. We try to end with um, more of a fun personal question with each person that we each <laughs> answer. So, Charlene, what are we going to do? Okay, so our question today, and I'll – Ask it, and then I'll answer first, Nira, and then Steve will go, Nira, so you have some time to think oh, about good. it. Oh, good. Thank so you. So our fun question today is, what is a favorite dish or food item from your childhood mm-hmm. oh. that you loved but you haven't had in a while? Okay, so think about that mm-hmm. question. And um, actually, Steve, did you want to go first? <laughs> so... Um, I well, I also took it as something that you cook. And I only cook two things: one is <laughs> one is cereal, and the other is grilled you cheese cook sandwiches. Cereal? Is well, that cooking? You make it or whatever, but also grilled cheese sandwiches. I'm that's, actually, that's a very expansive view of cooking. <laughs> I just need to tell you that. But I'm actually very good at making grilled cheese sandwiches, and to the extent <laughs> of when my wife Susan's birthday was coming up, so she's you know at a really stricter diet, and she's all like, "What I want for my birthday is for you to make me a grilled cheese sandwich." Uh. But then she got sick, so she couldn't actually have it on the day. So I took, a, I made a, I printed out a color picture of the sandwich <laughs> for her, and gave it to her, and then a few days later, I actually made her a grilled cheese sandwich, which she really oh, liked. That's grilled nice. cheese I O U. Oh, that's that's great. So mine was uh, so little background on my answer is so I was born here in New York City, mm-hmm. but then my parents sent me to Taiwan by myself when I was a kid, when I was ten, to live with my uh, relatives, my grandparents, to go to school to learn Chinese and. You know, learn to know what it's like to be Chinese. And while I was there, uh, my older cousins introduced me to stinky tofu. Oh. And let me tell you, this stuff is super stinky. So basically, you, they get uh, really highly fermented cubes of tofu. It's like runny and soft, and then they deep fry it. 
and then they smother it with chili sauce and they serve it with a kind of it's like pickled cabbage it's like a kimchi and that was my favorite childhood food especially when I was there and I just have really good memories of it I haven't had it about two years because I haven't been back to Taiwan in a while but um, yeah the smell of that stuff is like they would it's a street food and you could just smell it for blocks you could it doesn't sniff sound your way so to great. it. It's I'm so gonna take good. your word for it that it tastes great because you're the if you like strong selling. cheese you might be open to it but it's great. Uh, so my uh, my favorite food was uh, uh, was and is still a favorite uh, is bindi. So bindi is um, it's basically uh, fried ish uh, okra. Mm. Uh, so it has lots of Indian spices, and I used to consume that like daily. Mm. Uh, I I I do have it basically once a year, um, but it, you know not that often. It's not not every not every Indian restaurant has it, and I haven't made it myself. Um, but it every time I uh, have it or smell it, because you do you can it does have a distinct smell as well. Um, it does. It does bring back sort of fond memories of uh, growing up and Yum, and, and so cook and actually cooking uh, Indian food. Great. So that's all the time we have for now. So thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Thanks to our special guest today, Neera Tandon. Follow Neera on Twitter for a steady stream of lively <laughs> and provocative <laughs> tweets. <laughs> At Neera Tanden, N-E-E-R-A-T-A-N-D-E-N. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier. Recorded today at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. Until next time, keep the faith.